Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing, and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. My name is Tim Ehrenberg, and I'm a proud board member of the Nantucket Book Foundation and marketing consultant for the Nantucket Book Festival. I'm also the marketing director for Nantucket Book Partners, Nantucket's two island bookshops, Mitchell's Book Corner and Nantucket Bookworks. And I'm the creator of Tim Talks Books, which allows me to do fun author talks like this. The Nantucket Book Foundation is a nonprofit that celebrates the voices of contemporary writers and inspires creativity and imagination in our island students. For the second year in a row, our annual book festival has moved to an online format. Last year, we produced dozens of recorded conversations with writers, which we called At Home with Authors, that you can find on our website, nantucketbookfestival.org. This year, we've chosen to host fewer conversations that we really wanted to explore and highlight for our audiences. We're happy that Friends in Fiction is one of those conversations that we can share with literally hundreds of viewers around the world. Tonight's event is made possible by the generosity of the Friends in Fiction team, the five authors who you'll meet in a minute, their leader, Megan Walker, And for the tech side tonight, Sean Hettner, Nantucket Book Festival's executive director, Maddie Julstrom, plus viewers like you. If you appreciate the wonderful authors we bring to you and to our island students each year, please donate today at nantucketbookfestival.org with the link on the screen. Every little bit helps to continue the spread of joy um, to Nantucket and beyond. After all, there's no greater gift than giving someone a gift of their favorite new author or book. All of us at the Nantucket Book Foundation are thrilled to host the Fab Five of Friends in Fiction tonight. So without further ado, let's meet them. I'm going to do introductions a little differently tonight. Instead of bios you can read online or hear at any event, I asked each of them for some unique life facts. This first author married her high school sweetheart and didn't get her driver's license until she was 21. She is a proud graduate of the Moss Brothers Department Store School of Charm. A former journalist, she once interviewed Dr. Seuss and covered the real-life murder trials that were the basis of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. For research for her novels, this author has had herself booked into jail, locked in the trunk of a Cadillac, rode along on a drug bust, learned to fire a shotgun, and explored a hobo camp. Please welcome Mary Kay Andrews. Hey, everybody. So great to be with you tonight. This next author is the daughter of a preacher whose kindergarten teacher wrote on her report card, books are very important to her. Her first job was at Wendy's. She was a runner up in the Miss Sunburst pageant, marched with the high school band in the Orange Bowl parade and was a tigerette in college. She's a breast cancer survivor and once fell off a mountain while hiking alone. So she's very happy to be here tonight. Say hello to Patty Callahan Henry. Hi, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here. She's going to fall down now. So (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. 
We're happy to have you both. This author, next author, was her high school's prom queen and marched the bass and snare drum in her high school marching band. While in college, she often played Mario Kart with future NFL star Javon Kurse. She never won, not once. She once went on round-trip cross-country bus tour with 60s rock icon Chubby Checker. She was an extra in the American Idol movie starring Kelly Clarkson, where she and Billy Bush played a couple at a bar. Ladies and gentlemen, Kristen Harmel. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. No, you three are all together. Where are you right now? We are in Bluffton, South Carolina, because we had an event on Tybee Island this past weekend, and then another event today in Bluffton. And so we have been here writing and plotting and just generally trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, I don't know if you're doing a good job or not. No, yes. we don't. We don't. <laughs> this next author is the third eldest of 10 children. She speaks Japanese and was once involved in the massive rewrite of the Encyclopedia Britannica. She's the wife of a child psychiatrist. She's a 22-year-old member of Island Turtle Team, raises monarch butterflies, and co-breeds Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Here is Mary Alice Monroe. Hello, everybody. Hello, gang. Nice to see y'all. Hello. And last but not least, this author grew up in two weeks a month in Manhattan and two weeks in North Carolina. She once chatted with Jeff Bezos at a bar and had no idea who he was. <laughs> this author, she, I'm starting to sound like Julie Andrews in Bridgerton. This Sorry. She attended Catholic school and can still diagram the heck out of a sentence. Her first real date with her husband was a Dukes of Hazard cocktail party. Please welcome Christy Woodson Harvey. Hi, guys. Hi, Christy. I'm so excited to see y'all. Thanks for having us, Tim. Thank you. This is uh, this might sound cliche, but I feel like I know we've been planning this event for a while and with other things with the bookstores. I feel like I know you all and um, uh, such good friends already. So thank you so much for being a part of the book festival. We feel the same. Thanks for having yeah. us. We're thrilled. We've One been stalking the- you for years, Jim. Finally <laughs> <laughs> noticed us. You finally <laughs> noticed us. We would stalk you, and you'd be like, "He's so cute." <laughs> well, one of the very positive things about. Um, the pandemic is I feel was the friends in fiction podcast that you guys created. Um, It's such a joy to see uh, the joy that you're bringing all your fans and you really brought people together in such a time of separation. And I just wanted to say congratulations to everything you guys did. And so quickly um, with everything. It's lovely. Thank you. So I encourage you all to comment. Those that are out there watching because at the end, we'll pick a winner that will win some friends in fiction swag. So I encourage you to do that. I'm personally such a huge fan of all of you. So thank you for being um, here with the Nantucket Book Festival. I'm going to start the program with some individual questions about your 2021 books. And I'm going to start with Mary Kay Andrews, um, whose book, The Newcomer, came out May 4th. Mary Kay Andrews' books always come out about uh, the beginning of May, which is like the first glimpse of summer. And they're always just the perfect package, in my opinion. You just know you're going to get a good story. It's a no-brainer that you're going to pick it up and read it. Mary Kay, I wanted to know, where do you keep coming up with these ideas? And do you start with plot or character first? It, You know, it varies from book to book. This year... Um, the newcomers, the idea came from my editor, Jen Enderlin at St. Martin's Press. 
who called me up and said, I want you to write a fish out of a fish out of water story. And so that's where uh, the story of Letty and her four-year-old niece, Maya came from, but you know, next year's story came from somewhere totally different. So they come from everywhere. You also, um, Oh, sorry. Patty Callahan, Henry, you're up next. You discuss in your podcast devoted to your book about how the true story in Surviving Savannah was begging to be told. For those that don't know, Surviving Savannah is about a shipwreck Pulaski that took place. It's like the Titanic of the South and being a huge Titanic buff, I had to get my hands on this book. So can you tell us why you feel your story was begging to be told? When I first heard about the story, I was a little iffy about writing it because it was a shipwreck story and it was in 1838 and I knew it would require a lot of research. So when I first was looking into the story and trying to decide whether I wanted to write it, I was doing some research and I was on Google and this headline popped up and it said, Endurance Exploration has discovered the remains of the steamship Pulaski a hundred feet deep, 30 or so miles off the coast of North Carolina. And boom, while they're bringing up the artifacts and the treasure and the candlesticks and the gold and the silver, I'm bringing up the story. And I felt like it was kismet and it wanted to be told. You also discussed the idea of emancipating the past, which I was thought was such an interesting um, mm-hmm. point in the book. Can you tell people what that means? So I wish I could claim that phrase, but I interviewed, and it's on my podcast, but also I interviewed her for the book, the woman who helps run a museum in Savannah called the Owens Thomas House. And when I started asking her about 1838 and about how they kept the slave house, you know, for people to tour so they could see the truth about 1838. She used the term emancipating the past, which to her and to me meant telling the story from every angle, not just the mythological legend angle, but all the angles and emancipating it from this kind of mythology of the South. Mary Alice Monroe, you tackled the COVID-19 pandemic in your novel, The Summer of Lost and Found. I want to know how it was writing a book um, with the subject of what you were experiencing as you were experiencing it. Um, it I just would really love to know your ideas on that. Well, it was the hardest book I ever wrote. I'll start right there. But most of my books are sort of set against either an endangered species or some environmental issue. And in the year of the pandemic the endangered species was the human being. It was us. So I, what was the same was I, when I approach a book with animals, I always keep my eyes and ears open and my mouth shut and I'm quiet and I observe. But for the summer of lost and found, I had to pretty much observe my life and my children's lives, my grandchildren, the lives of the nation as we're going through this epic moment in history is a year like no other. What was different was that I wrote the book in real time. I I couldn't plot it out. I was living it and chronicling it day by day by day. And in the end, I have to say, I I figured out what it was I wanted to say by the end. And it was hard one. But I think 
I have to mention here that Kristen came up with it. Christ, Kristen Harmel, I know you're there listening. She came up with the title of the book, The Summer of Lost and Found. And it's because, I think it's perfect. Thank you, Kristen. But it's because that year of 2020, there was a whole lot lost. But there are some really great moments and memories and self-realizations found. So it was an experience. And I don't think I'll ever write in real time again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we got that one, at least. Christy Woodson Harvey, um, on the back of your books, it says, the major voice in Southern fiction. I think that our good friend Ellen wrote that. Yes, as a- thank you, Ellen. <laughs> what, I was looking, what I was wondering is what, I'm not from the South. I actually have never even visited the South. So I wanted to know. Wait, Tim, you have to come. I know, that's changing. That's yeah. changing. Yes, yeah. please. What is? What are the components of a Southern novel? I think when I think about Southern novels, the first thing I think of is just that really strong sense of place where um, the setting almost kind of becomes a character in the story. But I think also one of the reasons that I really like writing about the South, not only because, you know, I grew up here and I know about it, is because of the really distinct differences between different generations. Most of my stories are multi-generational. And I love seeing the difference in like the protocol and the ideas of, you know, people in my grandmother's generation versus people in my generation and how, you know, the the gaps that are bridged in between what we hold on to, what we let go of. It's also a place where um, people really like to hold on to their secrets. And so, and I love to write about secrets. So um, I think that's why I like writing it so much, but there's, I think there's usually a good secret in Southern fiction. Yeah. The idea of leftover embryos is a huge thing in this novel, Under the Southern Sky. Oh, and I, I haven't shown the books. I had them already, and I haven't. I forgot. Start over. <laughs> Begin again. Begin again. Under the Southern Sky, leftover embryos um, uh, is a big topic in the book, and it's kind of ripped from the headlines. I feel like this book yeah. came out, and there was so much in the news about that. After writing this book, have you gotten any other insight about that, and has did your opinion change on what you feel about them? You know, it's it's so bizarre because um, I got the idea for this book like five or six years ago, and I was just waiting to write it and waiting to write it. And it was like, as it was coming out, all of these stories just started erupting in the media about these kind of news breaking things about all these embryos. And um, it felt like a really good time for the book to come out. Um, but, you know, I don't know that I even have an opinion, if that makes sense. And I hope that when readers read this book, they... I didn't want to give them an opinion. I just wanted them to think about, you know, all the different ways that this could kind of go down. I will say, um, really interestingly, someone that I interviewed and spent a lot of time with when I was writing this book ended up adopting out their embryos, their leftover embryos to a really close friend. And I was like, oh my gosh. So like your really close friend's children are going to be your children with your husband, like your brother and your, your children's true biological brothers and sisters. And so after that, I was like, gosh, I wish I'd written the story about that. That's so interesting. Um, Well, there's so many different levels you can go with that and so many different places you can go. Absolutely. Kristen Harmel, it says on the book flap of your brand new forest of vanishing stars, that this is based on an incredible true story. And can you tell us um, some research about it? Because there are so many World War II books out there, and I feel like you've just nailed your last two. Um, oh. And so can you tell us about the research? Well, thank you for the compliment. Um, yeah, research is always a huge component of it for me because you want to make sure you get everything right and put as much detail into it as you can so that people really feel that, wor- that world that you're writing about. 
So for this novel, um, it's based very strongly on the real life survival stories of Jewish refugees who fled into the forests of Eastern Poland and survived the war that way. Um, and so there was a lot of reading. There was a lot of um, watching survivor testimony, things like that. But what really um, put a beating heart on all of these details I had assembled was getting to speak to a man named Aaron Bielski, who was the youngest of four brothers who formed a survivor group in the forest that began with just a few family members and by the end of the war had swelled to 1,200 people. So there were 1,200 people in a single group hiding in the heart of the forest. And Aaron, who was 14 when he fled into the forest, is 94 now. Um, and so speaking with him about not only what life was like there, but what that taught him and what that showed him in terms of a way forward for the rest of his life, um, I think really brought that story alive for me. Love that. So to my historical fiction writers, Patty and Kristen, I love this quote. It says, writing about the past reveals something about the present. So I want to get your thoughts on that and want to know what your book, Surviving Savannah and Forest of Vanishing Stars, reveal about 2021. The past echoes over and over. It, it's always brought forward. We don't leave it behind. It's it's with us. It's next to us. And when we bring back historical stories, we bring it forward so we can look at it, maybe not repeat the mistakes, but for me, for Surviving Savannah, it was about how he, just being human and that in tragedy, we are all human beings. And I really kind of nailed on the theme of surviving the surviving. Mm -hmm. And whether that is in 2021, 2020, or 1838, once we get through something, what do we do with it then? as a human? Do we make meaning out of something that is meaningless or do we just get through it or do we become bitter and hard? And I wanted to look at the past as a way to deal with the future. Yeah. yeah. How about you? You know, I think the past teaches us so much because as Patty said, we're all humans. We're, wherever we are in time, wherever we are in the world, whatever our religious background, whatever our ethnic background, you know, it, what, who, whatever and whoever we are, we're people and we have things in common across all of those separations. And so I think sometimes when you read about the past, you read about the past with the perspective of hindsight, which makes you see the past more clearly. And I think seeing the past clearly shows you a way forward. Surviving the surviving, as Patty mentioned, which is a, at the core of my story too, which is funny. We've talked about that. There kind of, there were threads running through all of our novels. Um, I think that showed us a way forward in 2020. And, you know, my books, I think always have a thread that runs through them that is about finding the ability to be extraordinary within yourself, finding a way to be the light in the darkness. And I think that's a message that we can use today, tomorrow, the day after that, because it can teach us how to be better in our daily lives from now on going yep. forward. Yeah. It's kind of that idea of that we all, everyone who's ever lived is looking at the same sun. And I think yeah. your, your yeah. themes yeah. are just yeah. deeper into that, which I just love. Um, so to my contemporary fiction writers, Mary Kay, Mary Alice and Christy, what does writing about the present inspire or warn us about the future? Mary Alice, do you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, honestly, to be 
this is a, a 20 year mission of mine is to have a message and to deliver it. Uh, my novels deliver environmental lessons, every single one of them. And clearly climate change is having and will continue to have such a tremendous impact on our future and the planet's future. So I'm not writing nonfiction. I use fiction to bring alive the wild, whether it's sea turtles or dolphins or birds of prey and hopefully soon whales, I bring them, them up close and personal. And if I do that, my readers can experience themselves the passion that I feel through my characters. And they make that connection with what is wild. And that is more powerful, I think, than anything that fiction does. I hope that they go from my novels to nonfiction to learn more, but it's the fiction that delivers that emotion. So my mantra is when you care, you take care. Hmm. And I hope that inspires action and influences the future. I like that. Well, why don't we discuss chiclet or women's fiction, beach reads, summer reads, whatever we want to call it. It's that label that I, I really despise in um, the book business because I loved all of your books. And as you can see, I'm a man. So <laughs> anyone who is listening out there who might think of your books as lighter reading or whatever label that maybe some call on it. I wanted to get your opinion on and I wanted to get something profound that you think all of your books can really have anyone relate to, no matter gender, um, race, sexual orientation, any of it. What something that just could? It's just like we said about human human living. Yeah. Well, Christy, there's a big message in um, your summer book. Well, thanks. Um, no, I mean, I, I think really when I write under the southern sky, I just I. I think there's so many really extraordinary and interesting ways that people create their families and they're all the right way, you know? And I think, um, you know, at its core, like that's really what I wanted this book to be about. It's what I wanted to write a story about. And, um, you know, I hope that people really come away with that message and, and also just, you know, the things that we do for the people that we love, for the people that are our family and, you know, the, the secrets we keep for them, the, the parts of ourselves that we give away, um, you know, I think that's a message that everyone can relate to, hopefully. Yeah. Well, you know, Tim, I have a bee under in my bonnet. Under my bonnet, in my bonnet. I don't know. <laughs> Around your bonnet. There's a bee. It's in it's in There's my a lot of bee. I have a bee in my beehive <laughs> about the term chiclet. I think it's limiting and I think it diminishes and dismisses the work of mostly women writers. Um yeah. so um you know, the only profound message um, that I want to convey to my readers um, year after year, and especially with the newcomers, is I want you to come into my world. Come on in, because the one guarantee that I can give you is that you're going to have a good time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. And good times are for men and women, just yeah. so you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, I don't know. I think all of us have heard from men who will kind of sidle up to us at an event and kind of oh, whisper, yeah. don't tell my friends, but <laughs> I read your books. I really <laughs> like, I really like your books. 
That happened to me at a party the other night and it was so funny. It was like a friend. He was like, I'm actually reading the whole Peachtree Bluff series because I really liked <laughs> Under the Southern Sky. I'm like, it's, it doesn't have to be a secret. You can, you know. Yeah, you should say it. Say it Get in touch with your feminine side. <laughs> well, I think like Jody Pico was on your Friends in Fiction podcast and she yeah. was talking about how what people really mean by that label is that a woman wrote it. And, yes. and yeah. that, it is that is just, it boggles my mind. But yeah. Um, so you I brought up your friends in fiction podcast. That's why we're all here together. Um, such an amazing, um, feat of like through the pandemic for you guys to do that. It's such a great show. I've watched several of them. You are amazing hosts. It's hilarious. You guys are very, very funny and you just bring a lot of joy to everyone on um, Wednesday nights. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to maybe go through the group and say your highlight of the last year of that podcast mm-hmm. or show. Um, I think for me, uh, we did an interview. I hosted Charlene Harris, who is an old, old friend. I've Char- Charlene and I have known each other for over 20 years. And um, I read her newest book. And then I, I, you know, we do a lot of research before we have a guest on. We want mm-hmm. we want to respect our guests and, and honor them by know, understanding their work and what they're talking about. And I had read that Charlene was um, a survivor of sexual assault. And that happens. Uh, she has a young character in her book who's raped. And so I did email her ahead of time. And I said, you know, Charlene, you've been you've been pretty um, out front about this in your in your um, social media and in your bios. And I said, would you talk about that um, during the show? And she she said, yeah. And so she talked about the reason she wanted to be upfront about it and, and be vocal about it is so that it would give other women the courage to say, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. And, mm-hmm. and to, you know, give other people a voice. So that was an, a, for me, a really memorable night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was there's, 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 there's so many memorable moments. Some where we were laughing so hard, tears are pouring down our face. <laughs> and some were crying so hard, tears yeah. are pouring down our face. And what we've been astounded by is the vulnerability of our guests, yeah. right? There's a certain intimacy to only looking at each other on the screen. Well, yeah. what y'all don't realize is we can only see each other. And so there have been some really profound moments. And if you're asking me one of my most memorable, I think I'm going to choose the one where we had our very first <laughs> guest And we knew that we wanted to start interviewing other authors after five or six shows of just the five of us talking. And our very first guest was Kristen Hanna. And it was a tech nightmare. And we were talking (laughs) through the phone to the screen. Nothing was working. The sound wasn't working. But when we finished, not only was she so open and absolutely beautifully honest about her struggles and about writing, after that episode, I had those chill bumps that said, we've got something here. Yeah. This yeah. is a pretty yeah. special yeah. platform. Yeah. And so that's one of my most memorable. Yeah. That's a good feeling that we've got something here feeling. Um, gosh, so many. And there were like 20 fighting for position. But when you say that, when you said that, I thought I do have to say it's Nantucket and um, we, I, I mean, when Ellen came on to my launch and it was so funny, Tim, because, um, the character that she was playing in my launch script was, had passed away. So you see her through her journal entries, 
um, in this story. And so we joked with Ellen the whole time, like, oh, make sure you sound like you're from the great beyond. Well, she was in St. John and the internet was down. She was doing it from her phone and you could hear her, but she sounded like she was coming from a million miles away. And we were like, oh, this is really, really perfect. It's amazing. You know, for me, I think one of the things, oh, I'm sorry, Mary Alice, go ahead. Oh, she's oh, muted. You're muted. You're on mute. You're muted, Mary Alice. You're muted. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, so so yeah, for, for me, um, you know, I'm just at the tail end of about two weeks of book tour for The Forest of Vanishing Stars, which is, you know, my first opportunity in a year and a half, really, to get out on the road and see people. And um, I know this isn't exactly a moment from the show, but it's a moment related to the show because I have been astounded and moved to tears by the number of people. Mm -hmm. And I know we've all now had this experience because we've all gotten out there and gotten to talk about our books. The number of people who come to our events, who raise their hands when we say, are you a member of Friends in Fiction? Mm -hmm. And then the people who come up to you afterwards and say that it meant something to them or it helped them through the pandemic Mm -hmm. or it gave them something to look forward to on a Wednesday night. Or that now that the pandemic's over, they hope we continue doing it because they found a place where they feel like they belong. And when Mm -hmm. they're, they're a part of a family and every single time someone has said that to them, I look into their eyes and I listen because I never want to forget what that means and and how special that is that we have this community with us. We, We are, we are so fortunate. They're coming and thanking us, but we, we're the fortunate we're the ones, and, and we don't forget that for a second. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, that's so true. It really is. And in that same kind of vein, I was going to say that it's what everyone doesn't see in the green room before the show when Sean yeah. is uh, Sean. Well, first of all, Sean's humor, his little he has these. Yeah, oh my gosh, so funny! But it's before the show when the guest first comes in. And you have that 15 minutes to a half hour. And after we do our sound checks and we're just talking, you see there's a change. There's a shift that happens where an author who might be nervous or or shy or unsure, the personalities, we all start talking and liking one another. And by the time the show actually starts and we bring the author back on she's much more free and we i find don't you all that sometimes we get different more depth more in-depth answers than i've seen in interviews with that same author elsewhere because it's the nature of the relaxed atmosphere of women talking friends and men and women talking but in my favorite event it goes from okay we have to say it i was supposed to be the host of an event, but my daughter got married. So I had to cut out, you know, when your daughter gets married, you, you should show up. (laughs) And it was, oh my gosh, Karen Slaughter. And no one was quite prepared for her humor. She is a hoot. She, we should have known when she appeared with a pirate hat on her Mm -hmm. head with a parrot on on her shoulder. That was our first clue. But the conversation was just so funny. And I only got to see it as a, as a viewer afterwards. And I could see, I think it was her comments and the expressions of Patty and Kristen and Christy. It was just sort of an open mouth deadpan. What? What do we do? What did she just what say? What happened now? Are we talking about pirates and parrot healthcare? Yeah. 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 What well, like, she probably kept you on your toes. That's for but, sure. Oh, oh. For a minute, it would be like, wait. 
is is she serious? Like, is this real? Is this like a real thing that <laughs> we we're talking sure. about? Or it was hilarious. She was amazing. It was, and a few f bombs too. So it was, <laughs> it was great. And I have some emails about. You can that go one. to our website, <laughs> friendsinfiction.com, y'all, and take a look. Yeah, I missed that one, so I will definitely be. We're going to have Karen. We're going to have Karen on again in August. Yeah, she's coming. Yeah. So, um, don't, yeah, we don't know what her what costume drama will be enacted. We might have to tape it. In August. We yeah. should turn the tables on her. We should show, show up, up in weird costumes. Oh, yes. Yes. I have a pirate costume, by the way. Well, <laughs> congratulations again about Friends in Fiction. Truly, okay. it, it, it's it's such an amazing, um, amazing place for so many readers and writers. So now we're going to move on to the next part of the program, which is always my favorite thing to do with authors. It's the lightning round. <laughs> and it's where I ask questions and then you five can just, um, first thing that comes to mind, um, fire out your answer. So are you guys ready? Yeah, we're ready. Yeah. Okay. Favorite book when you were young? Matilda. Sorry. The Secret Garden. <laughs> the Borrowers. Diary of Anne Frank. Little House on the Prairie. Oh, love all of those. Yeah. Favorite book so far this year? You know mine, Tim. I bet you can guess. We uh, begin, at the, we begin at the end. Yep. yep. Mm. I think mine is The Sweeney Sisters by Leanne Dolan. Yep. A Quiet Book, Trouble the Water by Rebecca Dwight Bruff. We had her on our podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's great. Oh, yeah. That was a good yeah. one. The Women of Chateau Lafayette by Stephanie Dre. That was very, yeah, yeah. I just finished it, so maybe it's why it's on my mind, but I loved Malibu Rising, Taylor Jenkins Reid. Ooh, I'm it's listening to one. it on audiobook now. I'm so good. An hour from the end, it is really good. So good. <laughs> she'll be on the show. Yes, yeah, she's yeah, on the show. Yes, yeah. August yep. 11th. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You're, for the rest of your life, you only get one book you can read over and over and over again. Oh, what is it? It's an easy answer for me. I've been reading it every year. It's The Shell Seekers by Rosamund Pilcher. Oh, oh wow. So interesting. Yeah. Um, Mine's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Betty Smith. No, that's good. I've heard me say that. It's my favorite. Oh, I love it. Guest. I think mine is I Feel Bad About My Neck by Nora Ephron. Yes. Oh, yeah. And they apply to everything. Like, yeah. Yes. And she's hilarious. I could keep yeah. reading this. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I think Rebecca. Daphne oh. Du Moyer. Yeah. Oh, such a good one. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Mine would be the collected works of all mythology ever written, which isn't a real book. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Every <laughs> night you read that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I cheated. cheated. You cheated. I cheated. Yeah. <laughs> You're out. Okay. So friends in fiction are having a dinner party and it's a party of 11 because obviously I will be coming. Each of you can invite one person living or dead. Who are they? This is always such a hard one because it changes. But I think for me, it'd be Pat Conroy. I miss Aww. him in real life. And he was a great raconteur. So, yeah, Pat. Um, I would say Joy Davidman because I have spent the past seven years either researching her, writing about her, or talking about her. So it'd be pretty cool to sit down with her and have a martini with an olive in it. Oh. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I win. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a, the show ain't over yet. <laughs> okay, who's next? 
Um, I guess I am. Um, I would love to be sitting at the round table at the Algonquin oh, and no. sitting right beside. I'd like then I would invite Dorothy Parker, Ooh. and she definitely puts a twist in my martini. Uh, I enjoy would be best friends. Yeah, yeah. I would. Okay, so I would invite um, Jesus if I could, because why would you not invite Jesus to your dinner party, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, That's I would one. imagine there's a lot he has to say. Yeah. But if he said no, I would probably ask Ernest Hemingway um, no. because um, I feel like the stories would be amazing. He would bring the best booze. Probably yeah. the and some fish, probably which would be right up your alley is his favorite champagne, supposedly. Yes, and you know, he might spend a lot of dinner insulting us, but at least he would do it eloquently and in memorable, <laughs> succinctly, and no, brutally. Quickly, <laughs> and we would marvel at the beauty of the insults. So, it'd be okay. <laughs> how about you, Christy? Um, this, I mean, this might not be interesting for everyone else, but I would invite my great grandmother because I never oh. got to meet her and she was a fascinating character um, who I will be writing about one day. So um, y'all will get to learn about her too, but um, who just did some really extraordinary things for the time in which she lived. And I would love to meet her. I love that. Well, that's going to be a crazy dinner party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> she would, I feel like she would be all about uh, meeting all Jesus. Yes. Yeah, well, Jesus. <laughs> I hope she's met Jesus. <laughs> True. I hope so too. Okay, favorite literary quote. Who's doing the Who's doing the seating plan for that dinner, Tim? I'll I'll put it together. Okay. okay. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Wait, can, who's doing the menu? Will there be some olive tapenade? <laughs> yes, we will make sure to have that in there for you. All of us are going to be part of that party. <laughs> no. So favorite literary quote. <laughs> oh, um, well, the I we were together talking about that, and I came up with um, this quote, and there are so many variations of it, but the one I like the best is from Red Smith, who, like me, is a former journalist. Well, he's a dead journalist now, but he said, "Has right, he met Jesus?" <laughs> <laughs> one hopes. One only hopes. He was a sports writer, so maybe not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Fred Smith said, writing is easy. You just sit down at a typewriter and open a vein. Uh, yeah, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. That's, That's a, a classic. Go ahead. Yeah. I do not have a favorite literary quote because I just pause and appreciate when something strikes me a certain way. So I'm going to tell you the last line that struck me. It was in the book Razorblade Tears, which I listened to on audiobook, and I spit out what I was drinking and rewound it. It says, it's someone describing a woman driving up behind him. I spied a silver BMW in the rearview mirror. Driven by a woman with the most severe, I want to speak with the manager haircut he'd ever seen. She zipped by them doing at least 30 miles per hour, like she had some Dalmatians in the trunk that she needed to make into a coat. And I thought, that is the best description of a woman I've ever heard in my entire life. So that's S.A. Cosby, Razor Blade Tears, and there'll be a guest on our podcast. It's such a good book. Such a good book. <laughs> it is. Um, I have this on my bulletin board at home. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's by a poet and philosopher named David White, and it says, I'm going to read it because otherwise I'll mess it up. What would it be like to start a conversation with myself that my future self would thank me for? What would it be like to become the saintly ancestor of my future happiness? Hmm. The idea of being ancestor of my 
own happiness when I'm trying to make a decision is really fascinating to me. Yeah, just picked up, and just mm. up it been, then it would have been a better growth. It would have been better, but <laughs> mine was mine's actually I. I didn't know what I was going to say for this. And then I was walking on the beach today and it just popped into my head. And I was like, duh, the world is hers for the reading. So, oh, I love that. Oh, that's a great one. I love that. Well, mine is one that I actually just found while I was writing The Summer Lost and Found. And it, I, it's pretty obvious why it struck home. And it's by Thoreau. And it says, you must live in the present. Launch yourself on every wave. Find your eternity in each moment. There is no other life but this. Hmm. I love that. That's beautiful. I love people's quotes. I do too. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your happy place. The beach. Yeah, Beaufort, where I live. It's my fave. Love it. I think for me, um, sitting on a sandy beach on the Gulf of Mexico, watching one of those Technicolor Gulf sunsets oh, with yeah. a glorious glass of Chardonnay in my hand. And maybe my husband at my side. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Like, I love you, maybe. I uncork my own wine bottle, so I need him. Oh, there you go. There you go. For me, it's either snuggled up, putting my little five-year-old to sleep, or um, Paris. Paris, always Paris. <laughs> Paris with an olive. Paris eating olives. There was a bar there I liked that served little marinated olives. Mm. The um, the idea that makes me so happy is being surrounded by people I love at the end of a really productive full day and sitting around a table like we're doing right now and just laughing so hard. Mm -hmm. And whatever happened that day, the people you love around you, it's just kind of melting away. Mm. That's That's nice. It's a nice moment. Tell us something your friends here might not know about you. I hate olives, like a lot. (laughs) I do. And like, you can't sneak them into something. I will know. If there is a trace of olive, out. No. Fascinating, Christine. Absolutely. Isn't that fascinating? No. Good to know. Fascinating. (laughs) How about you, Mary Alice? I play play or have played pretty weird instruments like the French horn and the Japanese okoto. Oh. I can sing every word to Billy Joel's Italian restaurant. And I can sing every word to Marky Good Vibrations. There you go. Wow. Um, hmm. Well, mine is that um, I like to write in the sunlight. And so I follow the sun around my house with my laptop oh, cool. like okay. a cat. So I'll oh. perch in the window seat, then I'll perch here. But I need, I really, I'm a Leo. I really have to have sunlight okay. for my maximum happiness of, in writing. That, I, I did that. not know that. Yes. I love that. Okay, so your pseudonym, and I changed this to make it a little bit more literary because usually this is like your stage name, but it's your first pet and the street you grew up on. All right. Mine, and we already talked about this one time, Tim, so yes. mine is Fluffy Marion. <laughs> so good. 
So good. That's such a stripper name. <laughs> it's not. It's my pseudonym. It's totally a stripper it name. It is not a stripper name. <laughs> he said pseudonym. Right? That's what he meant. <laughs> so, so mine um, would be terrible if I gave you my the real answer, which is my first pet was Dr. Spots. He was a Dalmatian. And <laughs> the street I grew up on was 74th Circle. So Dr. Spots 74th Circle doesn't really do anything. No, no. But I would do my second pet and the first street I lived on and then I would be Cottontail Country Club. <laughs> oh, God. I would totally read that book. Cottontail Country Club. Oh, my God. That's the best. That's a rapper name. You put, if you put little Cottontail whatever that is, you would have a rapper name. Oh, sure. my gosh. Yeah. Okay, who's next? Mine Mary- is Rascal Dogwood. <laughs> I love that singer. one. That's a country, country singer. singer yep. It's a country singer, yeah. yeah. Actually, mine yeah. sounds pretty good. It's my next life. <laughs> <laughs> mine actually is, is I could use it's it's Lily and Kenilworth. Lily Kenilworth. Oh, that's oh. a good one. That's I think like cozy mystery. Really lovely name. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that like a lot. Um, Mine is Moosey Serpentine. Moosey Serpentine. <laughs> yes, and you are a kid, you're a children's author, and you would fly off yourself. Actually, it's a good children's author. I was going to say it sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon show. <laughs> oh, Moosey Serpentine. Oh my gosh! You'd be okay, right, so right up there in your- the big red chair. <laughs> what's your next book about? If you're currently writing it, or if one is coming out in the winter, what is what is it about? Christy, you want to go around the circle up there? Sure. Um, my next one is Christmas in Peachtree Bluff. It's the fourth book in my Peachtree Bluff series. Um, and super briefly, it is about um, some of my beloved Peachtree Bluff characters get stuck in Peachtree Bluff during the storm of the century. And it is up to the ones who have already evacuated to rescue them. And rebuild the town just in time for Christmas. <laughs> Patty? Okay. Um, my next book is called Once Upon a Wardrobe, and it is set in 1950 England and is an adventure between a little boy and his sister as they try to discover the origins of Narnia. And mine is called The Santa Suit, and it's about a young woman who buys up falling down old farmhouse, and she discovers on the top of a closet um, a beautifully made Santa suit with a note, with a plaintive note from a child asking Santa to bring her daddy home from the war. And that'll be out September 28th. My next one, um, I'm only about a fifth of the way into writing it. It'll be out next July. It's not of a title yet. But it is a return to World War II France. It's about two mothers, two daughters, an allied bomb that falls where it shouldn't, a family ripped apart, and then a storyline in 1960 New York. Well, mine actually is coming out in June, and it's it's a middle grade book. It's following The Islanders, which is my first middle grade book. It came out last June, and it's called The Islanders treasure hunters and it's really a sweet story these three kids return to this island where there is no elect no cars no stores just nature and for these kids no wi-fi and in this first one the children 
became friends. They got to know each other. But the little boy was really concerned about what was happening to his dad who was injured in Afghanistan and he had lost his leg. So that was the story of book one and book two is a continuation of that. They're going to return to Dubuis, which is a real island, and search for this apparently Blackbeard's pirate treasures, truly supposed to be buried somewhere on Dubuis. And of course, kids are gonna look for that that treasure. But it's also the father-son relationship, uh, a PTSD father with trying to be a dad, play with his son while learning to live with a, a new leg. And so the treasure is also, you know, the double entendre of a father-son relationship. Well, I can't read, wait to read all five of them. Thank you. Okay, so now the part of the program that I'm most excited about we asked you to come up with um, original Nantucket stories that you guys have decided to call fairy tales. And they're all linked um, because they start on the ferry on the way to Nantucket Island um, for a magical day. So I can't wait to hear these. Um, and I think we're going to start with Mary Alice. Mary Alice. And it's only, it's going to be short, three minutes. And I'm starting out because I wrote an, the only nonfiction of the fairy tales, because sometimes uh, truth is funnier and stranger than fiction. So it's my visit to Nantucket. My first visit to Nantucket began with one phrase no vo voyager ever wants to hear. We lost your luggage. I was on book tour and thrilled to be attending the Nantucket Book Festival luncheon. We knew this tour schedule was tight, but no one planned on the thunderstorm. I endured a miserable 24 hours of canceled flights, hired cars, a long drive from Portland, Rhode Island to Hyannis, Massachusetts, and no sleep. But somehow I made it to the ferry in time. I walked onto the island grinning, feeling the salt scented breeze and caught my first glimpse of the fabled gray shingles and colorful flowers. I spied a quaint shop on Old South Wharf, and in the window, the most beautiful navy knit suit. It screamed Nantucket. Remember, I was wearing the same clothes for 24 hours. So I made a beeline for Peter England, and Carrie England exclaimed, the suit fit like it was made for me. I laughed and thought, yeah, and it's clean. It was also the most expensive suit I've ever purchased, and it was worth every penny. I felt confident and excited when I walked into the beautiful Nantucket Yacht Club for a luncheon with Nantucket Book Festival. A dark-haired, lovely woman with a gracious smile walked up and introduced herself as Nancy Thayer. Of course, I knew this iconic author of Nantucket. I'd read all her books, loved her writing style, so it didn't surprise me that we became fast friends. The luncheon was a great success. Nancy and I could have talked for hours. Still, afterwards, we got word from the airlines that my luggage was still missing. Nancy took me under her wing. Let's go shopping, she said. Oh, the streets of Nantucket. A shopper's paradise. We laughed as we walked along the hydrangea and flower-laden streets, one more charming than the other. From t-shirts to haute couture, the shops invited us to browse. Nancy guided me to her favorite stores, many of them long-term family businesses. One, Our first stop was Zero Main, where I was thrilled that in clothes, like in books, we had the same taste. 
Next, we went to Murray's Toggery for the famous Nantucket red casual clothes. Nancy told me, if a man is wearing faded red trousers, we know that he's been coming to the island for a long time. I longingly peered in the windows of the whaling museum as we passed and promised myself to visit later. We were on a mission. A cashmere shawl, shoes, even a hat. Nancy took me to Bookworks, a companion store to Mitchell's, filled with children's toys and clever gifts. It was a thrill to see my books in their window as a guest of the festival. We ended our shopping trip at Nancy's house, where we sat on her comfy sofa, drank martinis with yummy olives, <laughs> and talked to her handsome husband, Charlie, about conversation of the seas, conservation of the seas and the creatures who live in them. My luggage arrived two days later in time to board the ferry home. I had to buy a second suitcase for all my new clothes, <laughs> thinking that perhaps losing my luggage while in Nantucket turned out to be a stroke of good luck. <laughs> I found a window seat, and as the big engine started and we headed out to sea on the ferry, I felt akin to the whalers I'd learned about at the Whale Museum. Farewells on the docks were sad, emotional times. A whaling voyage could last from two to four years. I looked out at the sea, and as the ferry headed toward Hyannis, I hoped it would not take me that long before I returned to the charming island like no other. Aww. All right, Okay, my story uh, is all total fiction. And I call it the tale that wagged the dog. Talia flopped down on a seat in the gray lady's cabin. She put Simba's kennel at her feet and dug in her tote bag, that god-awful neon pink tote bag with the cheery hashtag Ryan and Rory's Big Day logo, brought out her sunglasses and adjusted them over her bloodshot eyes. She leaned her head back, already regretting this idiotic plan of her sister-in-law, Billy, to return to Nantucket to watch her ex-husband marry a 22-year-old toddler. <laughs> coffee, she muttered, must have coffee. On a return from the snack bar, she was startled to see a stranger sitting in the previously vacant seat next to hers, cradling Simba in his arms. The Shizu lolled on the man's shoulder, licking his chin and ears. Excuse me? She lifted her glasses so he could see the outrage in her eyes. What are you doing with my dog? He was whining and barking, the stranger said. I just, thanks, I'll take him now, Talia said icily. <clears throat> okay, wow, you're welcome. The man chuckled and handled over the wriggling dog, who promptly fell asleep in her lap. Talia pretended to nap for the first half of the trip, but she was vividly aware of the man beside her. He was undeniably attractive, maybe mid-40s. His hair was sun-bleached, and he had intriguing crow's feet radiating out, radiating out from gray-green eyes. He was dressed in faded khaki shorts and his long legs stuck out into the aisle. So you're headed to Ryan and Rory's wedding too, huh? He asked, pointing to the tote bag. Maybe. What about you? Oh, yeah, kind of a command performance. He stuck out his hand and she felt it would be rude to turn away. I'm paying. Talia. How do you know the happy couple? He asked. You first. <laughs> he smiled. It was a nice smile. Genuine. I'm the bride's former stepfather. Get out, Talia said. Afraid so, your turn. I was married to Ryan until a year ago. Ouch, he said. So Ryan's what? So Rory's what, half his age? The exact age of our daughter, Talia said. And they invited you to the wedding. Interesting. 
Actually, Ryan's sister, Billy, invited me. She has a sick sense of humor and she absolutely loathes your stepdaughter, ex-stepdaughter. And that makes two of us, I'm afraid. If you dislike Rory, why go to her wedding? He shrugged. Her new stepfather is my brother, Patrick. I haven't seen him in a while. Talia raised one eyebrow. Your mother, your brother married your ex? Isn't that cozy? Lori likes cozy. And now she won't have to throw out all those monogram towels we got as wedding gifts. No hard feelings, right? Anyway, they booked me a room at the White Elephant, so here I am. Now Talia raised another eyebrow. As it happens, I'm staying at the White Elephant, too. You still haven't told me why you're actually going to this wedding. Won't it be awkward? I certainly hope so, she said. Payne nodded sympathetically. On an impulse, he reached out and patted her hand. It gets better, you know. Talia looked out the window. They were coming into the harbor. The fog had cleared and the sky was a brilliant blue. Seagulls swooped low over the water. The ferry dock was within sight and Nantucket in all its summer glory was unfurled before her. Suddenly, the gray murk that had settled over her soul dissolved. And for the first time since the divorce, she felt her spirits lighten. She turned and gave her companion her most dazzling smile. <laughs> you know, I think it just has. She hesitated, her heart pounding, but then plunged ahead. You wouldn't want to have a drink tonight, would you? At the hotel? I was just going to ask you the same thing, he said. Dinner, too, unless you already have plans. Simba stirred. He sat up, looked around, and yawned, madly waving, wagging his fluffy white tail. Dinner would be lovely, Talia said. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so mine's kind of a continuation, but from a different character's viewpoint. July 7th, 7-7, was supposed to be Lula's lucky day. It was her birthday, for heaven's sake. Only from her delayed flight to her popped flip-flop to almost missing this ferry, it hadn't been lucky. Not at all. She dragged her pink tote bag, one strap had broken in the airport, across the floor of the Nantucket ferry and willed herself to take a deep breath, savor the breeze, and appreciate the silver lining. She was getting an all-expenses-paid trip out of this sham of a wedding. She scanned the boat looking for a seat when her eyes stopped on a pink tote that bore the same hideous insignia as hers. Hashtag Ryan and Rory's big day. She looked up to see two people and a dog she knew well. Talia? Payne? Simba? What in the world are you doing here? Then, oh God, Talia, you aren't going to object or something, are you? Her <laughs> former stepmother laughed so hard, Lula was afraid she had stopped breathing. Then she stood up and hugged her. Talia looked, well, she looked great, especially for someone whose ex-husband was marrying a 22-year-old. Oh, honey, no offense, but I'm so happy your father is 190 pounds of someone else's problem now. <laughs> Even my former stepdaughters, Payne said, hugging Lula now too. And just think, he said with faux wistfulness, we were all at the parents' cocktail where they met. The unlikely trio laughed. Talia gasped. Oh, Lula, happy birthday, honey. Lula rolled her eyes. Yeah, thanks. I guess my gift is my best friend becoming my new stepmother. Well, honey, all I can say is it probably won't last long. Payne tried to hide his laugh behind his hand. I'm sorry, he said. I think we have to laugh to keep from crying, right? Lula smirked. Yep, I'll be the maid of honor laughing all the way down the aisle. The ferry was nearing the wharf and Lula was already dreading dragging her busted tote. Are you guys staying at the Wawinit? No, the white elephant, Talia said. Lula could have sworn she and Payne shared a knowing smile. Well, good for Talia. Of all of Lula's stepmothers, Talia had been her favorite. If only her father had felt the same way. 
Only a few minutes later, she was getting off the shuttle and passing her rolling suitcase and wedding tote to a bellman. I'll come back to check in, she said. I'm going to go walk around. She pointed at her tote. If that disappeared into the sea, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Lula, despite her terrible mood, found herself charmed by Nantucket, enveloped in her sea breezes and sun glinting off the water. She ambled down to the Nantucket Marina, noticing the yachts and sailboats, center consoles and fishing boats. A guy who looked to be about her age was tying a rope to a cleat so quickly and expertly she couldn't look away, his hair falling over his forehead just so. When he stood up in his polo with the boat basin logo, she realized she was staring. He was the perfect mix of Nantucket preppy and surfer cool that made her practically swoon. He looked familiar, like she'd seen him somewhere. Or maybe even read him in a book. He still hadn't noticed her. Excuse me, she said. He looked up and smiled with a row of teeth so straight and white they almost blinded her. He was beautiful. She had a rule against dating men prettier than she was, but it was her birthday and her father was marrying her friend. Can I help you? He asked. Oh, well, it's just that it's my first trip to the island and I was looking for somewhere to get a drink. He looked down at his watch. I'm off work now. How about I show you around the island? She shot him her winningest smile, the one that got her term paper extensions. Oh, wow. That is so nice of you. I can't think of anything better than a tour from a real local. Maybe we can grab a drink at the chicken box. The chicken box? Trust me, you'll love it. I'm Link, by the way, he said. Blessing. Well, yes. Yes, he was. His arm brushed hers as they made their way down the dock. And just like that, her entire day turned around. July 7th was lucky once again. Oh, yay. <laughs> that is great. All right. We're on the same ferry. Mine is called A Whale of a Story with museum curator Everly Winthrop from Surviving Savannah. Sea spray flew over the side of the Nantucket high-speed ferry rails, and Everly Winthrop wobbled in her raffia-wrapped wedges, juggled her ships of the sea over stuffed tote bag, and slid. Just before she hit the deck, one leg heading east and one west, a man reached out and grabbed her elbow guided her to the railing past a woman with a little white yapping dog Mm. and an obnoxious hot pink tote bag. (laughs) Thank you, she said, embarrassed. I am ill-prepared at best. Ill-prepared, he asked. These shoes, these white pants, the bag, no Dramamine, she groaned. Nausea rose with the swell of the sea. Stare at the horizon, everyone told her. That's the cure. They were wrong. Seasick, he asked. She glanced at him now, a man with kind eyes behind rimless glasses, a gray baseball cap low on his forehead. He wore a blue rain slicker and a grin of amusement. I'm not good at sea travel, just sea history, she said. She stopped. She did not need to tell this stranger about her job and her goals in Nantucket. Your job is sea history, he asked. Boring. She stared at the horizon, the water furrowed with white caps, the sea inky and dark, mostly shipwrecks. How could shipwrecks be boring, he asked. Oh, they aren't, not at all. I just meant that you don't want to hear about my job. Sure I do. I have a bit of interest in shipwrecks myself. (laughs) Well, she paused, but he seemed so eager and interested, and he kept her from falling hard onto the deck but he was probably the kind of guy who only knew about the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) I need to borrow a few pieces from the whaling museum for my maritime museum in Savannah, but they're ignoring me. She shook her head with frustration. 
I have no idea what is wrong with them. Rude, if you ask me. Which shipwreck, he asked. You've probably never heard of it, the Essex. The Essex, you say? A whaling ship, she said. It was the inspiration behind Moby Dick. It took three months, three entire months to find any survivors. And there she went, as she tended to do when talking about history, on and on and on about a shipwreck and a whale and survivors and the tragedy of it all. The poor man's eyes glazed over. Nantucket came into view. Linen white clouds spread over gray shingled houses huddled together facing the sea. Seagulls sky dancing. They were both silent as the ferry eased into the wharf and came to a stop, a horn offering a loud howl of arrival. As he took his lead, she was embarrassed of her nonstop shipwreck chatter. It was lovely meeting you, he said, and paused for her name. Everly, she said. I hope you get what you came for on this little gray lady on the sea. He walked away before she could ask his name. The whaling museum sat like a brick jewel in the middle of town. Everly walked through the front door with an air of assurance. She could not fail. She headed straight for the Overlook Gallery where the Essex exhibit lived with its oil paintings, ship models, and etchings. A huge poster dominated the left wall advertising a book about the disaster. In the heart of the sea, the tragedy of the whale ship Essex by Nathaniel Philbrick. A man stood in front of the ship model and Everly eased her way around him, grabbing her camera from her bag. He turned the man from the ferry, his blue rain slicker draped over his arm, his baseball cap gone, and his smile the same. Hello, Everly. She paused. What was he doing here? I'm Nat Philbrick, <laughs> in the heart of the sea, she said, red heat rising to her hairline. I hear you'd like to borrow some of these artifacts for a museum display. Oh, you heard that somewhere, <laughs> did you? She asked. He laughed and together they turned to stare at the lone piece of twine that survived the Essex disaster, an emblem of Nantucket history. Okay. Yay! That's awesome. Okay. <clears throat> Mine stars Annie, who was the 12 year old daughter in The Sweetness of Forgetting, my 2012 oh, my book, which, um, so now she's in her early 20s. And that book took place partially on Cape Cod. And um, now her mother has opened another bakery on Nantucket. So the wind whipped Annie's hair as the ferry steamed across Nantucket Sound toward the wharf. She closed her eyes and breathed in. The ferry pulled slowly into Nantucket and Annie followed the crowd off the boat. As she hurried up Broad Street, she found herself slowing to a stop and lingering in front of the tantalizing windows of Nantucket Bookworks, her favorite place on the island, one of the home stores of authors such as Nathaniel Philbrick, Nancy Thayer, and Annie's personal favorite, Ellen Hildebrand. While Annie's classmates in Paris, where she was getting her master's in creative writing, toiled away on novels that compared to the 20th century masters, Annie had just completed her first book, Set on Cape Cod. She dreamed of being to the Cape what Ellen was to Nantucket. But that was silly. That's what her classmates and professors told her anyhow. They rolled their eyes at her and said that if you weren't striving to win a Pulitzer or a National Book Award, it wasn't worth writing at all. 
She rounded the corner onto Center Street in the familiar sign of the North Star Bakery. The third branch of her mother's bakery, originally founded on Cape Cod, came into view. Annie went in. Annie, her mom Hope, rushed around the counter from the back and pulled Annie into a tight hug. Honey, before you get settled, her mom said, pulling away, I need you to make a delivery. Seriously, you're putting me to work already? It shouldn't take long. It's a cake. It's all ready to go. She grabbed a white box on the counter tied with blue ribbon. It's going to Nantucket Bookworks. Ask for Tim. Tim Ehrenberg? Annie squeaked. As in Tim talks books? But he's like famous. Well, he's like waiting, her mother replied, tapping her watch. See you when you get back, sweetie. Perplexed, Annie headed out of the bakery and down the street to the bookstore. Inside, it smelled like fresh ink, crisp pages, and endless stories. Annie made her way to the counter where her heart thudded when she saw Tim. He was like a rock star to her. Cake, she managed to say, holding up the box. Tim laughed. You must be Hope's daughter, Annie. He began to walk, leading her to a door in the back of the store. He pushed it open and gestured for her to go in. She's waiting for you. Annie was about to ask who, but there was no need. For as she entered the room, she saw her. It was Ellen Hildebrand sitting right there, signing autographs. Annie, Ellen said, rising from her chair. I've been expecting you. Me? Annie asked. And then promptly, she dropped the cake. (laughs) Splatting sound as it fell, and Annie knew immediately it had been ruined. She looked up in horror. I'm so sorry, she said. I dropped your cake. But Ellen didn't look mad. Actually, you dropped your cake, she said. And when Ellen gave her a puzzled look, Ellen crossed from behind her signing table, bent to the box, and opened it. She gestured inside, and when Annie dared look, her jaw dropped. Yes, the cake, an olive oil cake, her favorite, had been reduced to a pile of frosted mush. But the words written across the top were still visible. Congratulations on your book. Love, Mom, the cake said. Your mom told me about you and the way your classmates and professors have been treating your work, Ellen said. Look, I see a bright career ahead of you, Annie, and I never want you to let other people's opinions shape the way you see yourself. So thank you, Annie managed. Well, don't just stand there, Ellen said. Grab a fork. She pulled two out of her pocket, handed one over and winked. Okay, Annie, tell me about this book of yours. Slowly, hesitantly, Annie began. Her heart lifting as Ellen ate cake and nodded along, asking questions here and there. Maybe one day, Annie would be the one in this back room, signing books, making a young writer feel inspired. Maybe one day, Tim would be posting about Annie's books. But today, today, this was enough. Today, this was everything. Today, she could see a future stretching before her, beautiful and bright as a Nantucket afternoon. Yay! Those were amazing. <laughs> I think you, you said your publishing um, houses were on this call. So do we have some book deals? Because I would like to continue reading. I really want MKA to write a book about Italian. About yes, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that was fun. So much fun. Thank you for taking the time to do that. I feel like since we still weren't able to get you guys to Nantucket, um, this was a way to to have that within this virtual event. So thank you for writing those. It was a fun challenge. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was really fun. So Kristen, I wanted to hand it over to you. And yeah, so, so let me just about- say a couple words about Friends in Fiction. Um, you know, I know a lot of you here tonight are with us already on Friends in Fiction, but those of you who aren't, we really hope you'll join us. Mm-hmm. It's a community for book lovers. And if you love stories and you're interested in the writing world, 
and you find us there, you will have come to the right place, as we say in our in our opening. Um, you know, we have a great schedule coming up. Tomorrow night, we are hosting Vanessa Riley. We have Christina Baker-Klein the week after. And our fall schedule over the next month or so, month or two, includes Karen Slaughter, Emily Henry, Taylor Jenkins-Reed, and lots and lots of other amazing special guests. It's a great place to be. You can interact with other book lovers. Um, and we really do strive to put on the best live show we can every Wednesday night at seven and to send you podcasts as well um, that can entertain you in the meantime. So we hope you'll join us friends and fiction. You can find us on Facebook um, and we are also on YouTube and wherever you can find your podcasts. Thank you. So one other thing we wanted to tell you about is that Mary Kay Andrews and Christy Woodson Harvey and I all have books coming out in September and October. You heard us talk about them earlier in the show and we partnered with Nantucket Book Partners and with Tim for what we are calling a Winter Wonderland subscription. You can get all three books when you subscribe to this package. And not only will you receive signed first editions of each book right when they come out, but also a Friends in Fiction mug. Mug, 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 It's a long night. Friends it's like fiction. this, but you put <laughs> and it's got a handle, it and a it's handle. a friends and fiction mug. Like but also some really exclusive content that we've made only for Tim and the book partners and this package. It includes a video we all took together to talk about the secrets behind this book, and you get a QR code to watch it. You get a book club kit made just for this subscription box, and uh, we're really excited about it. So if you go to the Nantucket Book Partners website, you will find it right there. And I want to thank all three of you so much because in this day and age, to help an independent bookstore like that, we appreciate it um, because you... It's all about finding the things that people can't find anywhere else. And this is yeah. truly something that's um, that you can't get anywhere else. And we really appreciate you coming to us with this idea and um, doing it. We can't we can't thank you enough. Well, you know, oh, supporting independent booksellers has been a part of our mission from mm -hmm. the very beginning. So every week we partner with a different independent bookstore and, and ask our viewers to um, order books through them. And they do, which is always great news. Yes, Thanks. and I want to um, announce our giveaway winner. Is that good? It's a good time? Yeah. Um, so our winner is Janet Catlett. I think I'm saying that right, from Noblesville, Indiana. So congratulations, Janet. Congratulations. get your tote bag right out to you. Congratulations. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I want to thank our audience tonight whose support makes the Nantucket Book Festival's programming possible, whether online or in person. You can follow us on social media at Nantucket Book Festival. And Nantucket Book Festival is happy to be hosting a few in-person events on Nantucket in August and September. And so we're really looking forward to welcoming back live audiences to our 10th anniversary Nantucket Book Festival, June 16th through the 19th, 2022. If you like tonight's event and want to support our Nantucket Book Festival endeavors, please consider a donation. Like I said, any amount helps us to continue our efforts to spread the joy of reading to Nantucket and beyond. Visit NantucketBookFestival.org for more information. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I had so much fun. I hope all you viewers had fun. Sorry, we went a little over, but I think it was worth it. And I just, um, like I said, such a big fan of all of you. And thank you for being here at the Nantucket Book Festival. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It was wonderful. It was so fun. Thank you. Happy reading, everyone. 
Bye. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.